Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT, the Pete Callender Show. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. You can email Pete at thepetecallendershow.com and get the podcast at wbt.com. So the North State Journal had an uh, AP piece on how the reality of homelessness and the crisis in Oregon's largest city can no longer be denied. Increasingly, in liberal cities across the country where people living in tents in public spaces have long been tolerated, leaders are removing encampments now and pushing other strict measures to address homelessness that would have been unheard of a few years ago. I mentioned this story a bit yesterday in advance of the Charlotte City Council taking up uh, ordinance revisions. Well, they punted. They punted last night. But it takes me to... This piece by John Hood. Several weeks ago, he says, he pointed out that Republican-led states outpaced Democrat-led states in population growth. Some blue-tinted places, such as California, New York, Illinois, they had a net outflow of residents, while red-tinted places, such as Florida, Texas, and North Carolina, had a net inflow. While he says, I was careful to note that many other factors such as weather and recreational amenities influence where people choose to live, I argued that the relationship between GOP governance and in-migration was unlikely to be a coincidence. Precisely. This is one of the things, folks on the left, I'm not sure you guys really appreciate, like, you do get a lot of leeway when you live in areas that are governed by Republicans. You get, you get to do all sorts of, and you get to, you get to do what you want to do while also playing the victim, playing the martyr. You know, you get to like, Oh, I live in this oppressive state, death Santis and all this, you know, meanwhile, you you get access to the business and commerce and no masks and everything else. So you enjoy the governing while, you know, maintaining the ability to attack the people doing the governing. Because when you guys get in power in these states, man, oh, I mean, look at the cities, right? The cities, oh, here you go. I had this on the, from the previous hour, we were talking about crime and how this is a terrible issue for, uh, for Democrats. Up the road in Bull City, Durham's homicide rates up 30% reached a record of 50 murders for the year in 2021. City leaders have been scrambling for solutions, so they just rolled out a gunshot detection system called Shot Spotter. It's used by 120 police departments across the country, including New York, Chicago, Detroit, Boston. Why is it that all of these big cities run by Democrats have such, have such high crime problems? What, what's the deal? Durham is the sixth city in North Carolina to adopt the uh, shot spotter system. And let's see, Rocky Mount had it in the decades since violence in the eastern city has receded. Charlotte got a federal grant and installed the system in its uptown area during the 2012 Democratic National Convention. City officials, however, decided the system was too expensive for the minimal amount of data produced. And in a statement to the Charlotte Observer, the shot spotter CEO at the time named Ralph Clark said this was because the system was solely monitoring Uptown, which is the only sector of the city 
without a single homicide that year. They put the shot spotter (laughs) in the place where there were no shots. If more violent neighborhoods were monitored, the technology could have been put to better use. John Hood's article, or column, I should say, the Carolina Journal, Red States Make Democrats Blue. He says he wrote this piece about how there's probably some relationship to GOP governance and the amount of people that want to live in those states. They tax less. They regulate less. These produce signals into the marketplace that there are better job opportunities, lower cost housing is available. I'll never forget there was a fella, there is a fella, his name is Mike Summy, and he lives in Asheville. He's a multimillionaire, uh, came from war, West Virginia. And uh, Bootstrap Story wrote a book about it called uh, The Financial Security Bible and talks about his own upbringing. And he built an entire uh, weekend millionaire series, a series of books where they talked about how you go out and buy homes and turn them into rental properties And he did the math on it, what you look for, and he gave all of the stuff. And he did this 30 years ago or so. And I had several conversations, interviews with him over the years about stuff. He refused to do any more work in Asheville. He quit. He lived in Asheville, right outside. He was in Leicester. But right outside the city limits, and he built a place, I think it was like Xanadu, and uh, it was a a huge spread. But um, he, he would not do any more buildings or deals he he went down into a town in south carolina he said pete they gave me the key to the city literally like they said here's the key it opens all the doors no i'm kidding but they gave him the key to the city they welcomed him because he was coming down and he was building affordable housing for people he was buying housing he was rehabbing housing and he said i can't build anything in Asheville. the regulations that they put in place with the different ordinances and such i just can't do it and at some point, you know, and then and then if you try to, you know, pay to to meet their regulatory burdens, and maybe you eke out a one or two percent profit if everything goes right and you don't get, you know, weather delays or subs that walk off the job or something, right? Just assuming that you can actually clear the one or two percent, you still have to put up with the Moonbat Brigade that comes down and says that you're the bane of all existence, that you're the evil one in the community robbing everybody else of whatever they think they deserve. And at some point, it's not worth it. As I always say, is the juice worth the squeeze? And that's why when you drive around Asheville, I was always amazed. They have these huge plots of land, these huge areas that where there used to be like manufacturing or industry, and then the buildings got torn down or fell down. And so you've got this flat piece of land, and nothing's happening on it, on major roads. But people can't meet the regulatory burdens. And flat land is at a premium up there. You get a big site, flat land on a major road, why is that not getting turned over? There's something else going on there. So John Hood says he got so much response from this initial column that he wrote, and he says he thinks that he did because of how much the issue shapes the political narratives that partisans tell themselves. For decades, North Carolina Democrats insisted that our state was more progressive and economically successful than all the other southern states because the state was willing to invest tons of money into education and infrastructure. 
and they discounted the influence of taxation and regulation on the decisions of households and businesses. The GOP narrative accepted neither of the Democrats' premises. First, the GOP pointed out that the North Carolina uh, that North Carolina wasn't actually really outperforming the lower taxed states in the region, and the GOP argued that if you cut taxes and reduce regulations, that that would make North Carolina a more attractive place to live, work, and build businesses. And they were right. More on that in a minute. News Talk 1110-993-WBT, the Pete Callender Show. So along, along the lines of, you know, welcome to this state, you're new here. I, I give you these these background this background in the history uh, recently of, of North Carolina government and politics because there are a lot of people who have arrived since 2010 and they think that the state's been run by Republicans for you know forever and it hasn't and there's been a you're seeing sort of the maturation of the GOP in North Carolina because the first few years were very very bumpy. They had never held power before in the state. So a lot of the things that they had learned about how to you know, legislate, they had learned from the Democrats because the Democrats were the majority party. And they had all of these shady practices and stuff. They had these roving committee members that would go and you know be able to swing votes in any direction, stuff like that. But the Republicans took over and they said, look, we have a different philosophy. You guys... Pitch this philosophy of investment, which is that's just spending. And here's their here's the North Carolina Democratic Party's economic philosophy, their fiscal policy, which was see a penny, spend a penny. Any excess revenue that comes in is going to be spent and they're going to call it investing, investing in the future, investing in the children, investing in the roads, investing in infrastructure, investing in bridges whatever. And whenever they use that term, just think spending, because that's what it is. Now, that's not to say that some spending isn't needed. Obviously, it is. I'm a realist. I'm a pragmatist. I get it. I am a lowercase libertarian, so I would very much like to see way less spending on these things. But I understand that we in society order ourselves around these you know, state and local governments, and so we create the governing systems in order to uh, enjoy as much economic prosperity and security under that uh, system as possible. So if you've got the Democrats saying we're going to invest, 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 and we're going to spend it on education and infrastructure, but that means we have to have high taxes, which they did, lots of regulations, which there were. Was that a drain? And the Republicans said, yes, it is. You've gone too far on the tax side, too far on the regulatory side, you need to uh, lower taxes and cut regulations. And that would make the state more attractive for people to come to. Democrats disagreed, but Democrats lost in 2010. Republicans took over, and as John Hood writes, for Democrats, the past decade has been excruciating. Their loss of the General Assembly in 2010, which occurred despite the fact that they vastly outspent their GOP rivals that year and ran in districts that Democrats drew to favor themselves. This was obviously prior to their epiphany that gerrymandering is unconstitutional. 
They only figured that out this past year. So they drew maps. They outspent Republicans. They had all of the wind at their back. And they still lost. They were no longer in a position to act on and further their cherished narrative. So now it was the Republicans' turn. Democrats predicted disaster. I still remember this, too. The uh, North Carolina uh, Budget and Tax Center, I think is what they're called, the BTC. It's a left-wing offshoot affiliated with the constellation of leftist organizations um, in uh, uh, Progressive Pulse. Is, is one of them, uh, Progress NC, it's all under that umbrella. Anyway, they were predicting when the Republicans did their first budget, <laughs> they were, the Budget Tax Center was saying stuff like, uh, you're going to bankrupt this state in two years. This is economic ruin. You're going to have lower revenues. It's robbing all of the, the money from the Treasury. All of these real uh, doom and gloom predictions, none of which came true. In fact, quite the opposite. North Carolina started generating surpluses. And if you were not here prior to 2010, North Carolina never generated surpluses. There was always a structural deficit, always. And sometimes they would keep your refund. They would keep your tax refund. It happened to me. They would keep refunds to the cities because the cities would be the point of collection for tax money. And then they'd have to send the checks up to... uh, to the state, and then the state would reimburse them back a certain amount. They'd have to take their cut and all that. Well, if the state needed to balance its budget, it would just withhold the money from the cities, which you know kind of hacked off some of the cities because they were counting on that money in their budget. So now the cities have to raise taxes. So it had this, dare I call it, a trickle-down effect. So, yeah, that's how Democrats used to balance their fiscal uh, budget. But they were mistaken. Their mistakes didn't just come from underestimating the role that tax rates and regulatory costs play in economic decisions, though these price signals are important. Democrats and the progressives who advise them tend to overestimate the efficiency of government spending. They assume that states spending more money on education and infrastructure will likely end up with more productive schools and roads and other public assets. However, the 10 most populous states in the country... Over the past decade, of the 10, four grew faster than the national average. Texas, Florida, Georgia, and us. Interesting. Red states make Democrats blue. It's a piece by John Hood at the Carolina Journal, carolinajournal.com. And uh, he goes over some of the uh, the data, and we all know how much our friends on the left rely on data. So the five big states with the best schools. You ready? The five big states with the best schools in descending order are Florida, North Carolina, Georgia, Texas, and Illinois. This is from... The NAEP scores, the National Assessment of Educational Progress Exams, the nation's report cards. He used the 2021 report card from the American Society of Civil Engineers, and he also used the 2021 Highway Report from the Reason Foundation. So the five big states with the best schools, Florida, North Carolina, Georgia, Texas, and Illinois. The top five in infrastructure quality, 
Georgia, Texas, Florida, North Carolina, and Illinois. The top five in highway performance, North Carolina, Georgia, Texas, Ohio, and Michigan. By contrast, the two largest blue states, California and New York, fare poorly on nearly every performance measure. Is that there? There isn't. It's not that there's. A, there isn't a, some sort of a uh, relationship between what governments spend and the quality of services they provide. Right? There isn't a strong relationship there. Spending just to spend doesn't make the service better. And I know that sounds obvious to a lot of people that are hearing me say that. It's obvious to me too. Democrats. We're never wrong about education and infrastructure. They are valuable services. What they got wrong was assuming that Republican policies are inconsistent with delivering these services effectively. This is, I say this in so many different examples, so many different uh, issues. We have the same idea of where we want to go. And so when you come at me, as this troll did today on Twitter, I guess I could probably finally pay this off, right? What do you say? Um, When you come at me and you make a bad faith assertion about what my objective is, then I'm going to treat you. I'm going to reciprocate that trolling behavior right back to you on social media and in phone calls, too. If you're going to take an antagonistic attack mode approach to me, then I can. Yeah, I'm your huckleberry. I can do that, too. I prefer to have the complex, nuanced discussions. Right. But I am comfortable in either scenario. (laughs) So when... You say you want to make sure all the kids can read. I agree. I want all the kids to be able to read too. I just have a different idea about whether or not your method is the most effective way to do it. Are there cost savings? Are there efficiencies? Are there better outcomes that we might be able to tease out? Why do we why do we stay locked into a system that perpetually fails a significant portion of the the customers, the students that are being sent there against their will, right? Let me go over here to Jim, get him on before the break. Hello, Jim. Welcome to the program. How are you? Hey, Pete. I've heard you a number of times say you would disband the public uh, K-12 system. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading 20-something years ago, or just reading the business news, that Intel, some of its first big fabs they built in the United States out in Arizona or New Mexico. Uh, they wanted to come in, build a new big plant. The local community, of course, said, well, where are we going to get the funding to build the schools? Well, Intel agreed to build a high school. Okay. And right now, this morning, I'm reading, and by the way, I'm of the Vietnam era, one of the biggest tragedies of the United States, in my opinion. There's a Vietnam company looking at 2,100 acres somewhere near Sanford mm-hmm. to build an EV plant. Okay, I'm thinking, well, okay, you can come Vietnamese company, which, by the way, is communist, and you build us a new school or two there. But, Pete, the North Carolina Constitution says free education. I never will forget that first time I read it. I would contend the public system in North Carolina, both higher education and K-12, 
is nowhere near free from an ideological standpoint and from an administrative standpoint. And, of course, we know financially this is one of the most expensive in the whole country. So this is that that student and their parents, of course, can go K-12 basically free. Yeah, well, Jim, out of their own pocket. Right, Jim, there is, uh, there's a guy named Marcus Brandon. He used to be a state lawmaker. He's a black Democrat who beats up on the Democratic Party be- over this very issue, the school choice issue. And he points out that the Constitution talks about uh, an education being provided f- as a basic right for all, uh, for all North Carolina students. And he says, but it doesn't dictate how that needs to be provided. And if you gave the money to the parents and let the dollars follow the kids, that satisfies the constitutional requirement for the sound basic education. Well, Pete, it's, it's, it's my opinion. If you step back and you look at the system right now, the system is geared to maintaining the administrative state in North Carolina and, of course, all the state employees, right. either direct or indirect, hired by the system, higher education and K-12. Mm-hmm. That's what the system's really all about. Yeah. And, yeah. and the higher the sales tax goes, uh, even though they argue they're lowering a little bit the income tax. Well, they have. the property taxes, the sales taxes keep marching straight up. Well, but the sales, they, but they, yeah, but they, keep, they maintain the power over the citizenry that way, Pete. But Jim, the all right, yeah. So the income tax has been slashed in North Carolina. It's now down to what five and a quarter, I think, or even under that. Now it used to be somewhere around nine percent, ten percent. So that has been slashed, and the sales tax that depends on where you are in the state. Charlotte keeps increasing it, but you can go other places that don't have a high sales tax, as well as the property tax rates too. So. Well, 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 state. Uh, well, Pete. Twenty years ago, the basic North Carolina tax, the whole state, was about four and a half to five percent. Well, now it's six and three quarters in every county except for Durham, Mecklenburg. It's got a higher rate. But they were raising those taxes back. Yeah, but they've been raising those sales taxes for twenty years. Th- that's correct. Yeah. But look what that money's going to support: a huge administrative system, educational administrative system. And a huge state employment base. That's what the taxes are all about. Not giving Johnny Q or Susie Q a free K-12 education. I got you. Basically free upper education. Yeah, no, I got you, Jim. I got to run. I appreciate the call, sir. Good to talk with you. Um, Yeah, I I recognize that my position of abolition of the K-12 government school system is uh, is an outlier. I recognize that's not, uh, that's a scary thing for a lot of people. I get that. That's why my compromise position is vouchers, more opportunity scholarships, let everybody choose where they want to go, and you can keep doing the public schools, and if they can compete, then people will still want to go there. See? That's, that's me compromising. What can I say? I'm a giver. News Talk 1110 WBT. WB, WB. Pete Callender here and uh, talking about education. Um, we got developments in the Leandro lawsuit. I haven't gotten to, uh, maybe I'll go a little bit more in depth on this tomorrow, but 
Got the new judge now, Judge Michael Robinson, because uh, David Lee, the Union County judge, uh, Democrat, Robinson's a Republican, and uh, Lee got taken off of the case by the Supreme Court Chief Justice Paul Newby. Robinson recently took over as the trial judge in North Carolina's long-running courtroom battle over education funding. It's known by the shorthand title Leandro, because that was the family's name, the Leandro case. It's been going on for like 40 years or something. Robinson replaced David Lee, a Union County judge who had been working on Leandro and a handful of other cases in semi-retirement. Because in North Carolina, when you get to be a certain age, I think it's 72 you have to retire as a judge. And last November, but okay, so, but because you're retired, uh, you can still be called back into service to do a couple of cases here and there. Uh, and the, the chief justice of the state Supreme Court makes those determinations, right? New or um, uh, Sherry Beasley, who's running for U.S. Senate, she's the one in the governor, right? In the Supreme Court, Democrat controlled. They're the ones who put, David Lee in charge of the Leandro case. He replaced Judge Howard Manning. Howard Manning, Republican. Howard Manning was the one who said, kids have the right to a sound basic education in the Constitution, so you guys need to provide that, and the state is not providing that. That was several decades ago. Manning has been critical of David Lee in this recent approach that Lee was taking, which was he was going to direct funding be allocated outside of the legislative process. And the lawmakers, the legislative body, said that is unconstitutional. And David Lee, uh, David Lee did not seem to care and put us on a path towards a constitutional crisis. Enter Paul Newby, who beats Sherry Beasley by like 400 votes or something statewide. And he now has removed David Lee from this case from the Leandro case and put Michael Robinson overseeing the case now instead. The plan, oh, so last November, Lee ordered state officials to transfer more than $1.7 billion out of North Carolina's treasury. The money would head to two state agencies and the UNC system. It would pay for portions of a multi-year comprehensive remedial plan costing at least $5.6 billion Dollars. Oh, you know what? Hang on a second. Hang on. Hang on. Let me get. Let me get this card. All right. When I went to the John Locke Foundation's uh, Liberty Conference a couple weeks back, and what I always love, John Locke Foundation always puts out these little cards, and it's a, just a. It, they call it North Carolina Fast Facts, and I've got a stack of these going back probably a decade now, and it has on one side of the card general fund appropriations. Total education spending. What would you think the total education spending number is in North Carolina? $15.4 billion. That's what is spent on education in North Carolina, and that represents 60% of the state budget. K-12 education is $10.6 billion, representing 41%. Of the entire state budget, the UNC system gets three and a half billion, making fourteen percent. And then finally, pulling up the rear, community colleges 
$1.3 billion at only 5% of the total budget spending. So that's, but overall, education is 60%. Next up, health and human services. 23% of the budget is health and human services. Oh my gosh, now we're at 83% of all of the spending already. Next up, justice and public safety. 13%, leaving just 5% left over for natural and economic resources, 2% for general government. The vast majority of the revenue, 53% of it, comes from the personal income tax, 53.3% of the total coming from that revenue source, followed by the sales and use tax at 30.4%. Corporate income tax is 5.1%. And they got trust fund, uh, highway trust fund numbers and population numbers. So, and they got tax rates here. So, oh, here you go. Personal income tax is now 4.99%. Corporate income tax rate is 2.5%. And the state sales tax is 4.75%. The state gas tax is 36 cents. That's why I take the cards. It's so helpful. I wish I had remembered it was on there when I was talking to Jim earlier. Oh, man, I've gone so far afield from the Leandro <laughs> topic. I apologize. I apologize. But that's good information, right? It's good information. So $1.7 billion is how much money this judge said needed to be redirected out of the Treasury without any kind of legislative approval. Now, Robinson, the new judge, he has an opportunity here, Mitch Kokai writes at Carolina Journal, he has an opportunity to reassess the state's education funding picture. And here's, here's the escape hatch. Here's the way he can get out of this. The judge can say, well, look, David Lee issued his ruling back before the legislature had approved a budget. And since he issued the ruling, the legislature has approved a budget. It approved a budget with bipartisan support and Governor Roy Cooper signed it into law. So I don't know if you can make the argument that all of these people are now not caring about the education of the kids and are harming the children, right? This is a bipartisan effort. So the new judge can say, well, since the old ruling, they've got a new budget, and so we're not even going to take it up. We'll see if he takes that escape route. We shall see. All right. Brett Winterbull's coming up next. Stay tuned. I'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.